Well, babe, we did it. We wrote a book. Yeah, man, it's it's actually surreal to even think about uh, that we wrote a book, had a baby, got married, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> <laughs> but the book is now available yeah. for pre-order, and we're so excited to share it with you. Oh, so looking forward to getting this book into your hands, to be in dialogue and conversation with all of you as we continue to liberate love from old imprints and codependent dynamics that keep us small, stuck, and stagnant. Yeah, you know, no matter your relationship status, this book walks you through what shaped you, why do you do what you do in relationship. It dives deep into your relationship blueprint, attachment styles, and most importantly, which is different than every other book that's ever covered codependency in the past, we explore the role of the nervous system in that. And the book is called Liberated Love. Yeah. Release your codependent patterns and create the love you desire. Go to createthelove.com slash liberated love to order your copy now. That's createthelove.com slash liberated love and get that pre-order in and you'll be able to get a free download of a meditation we created and a workbook that goes along with it. Much love and appreciation for your support. Much love. Thank you. The biggest thing that we do not know how to do as humans is regulate our nervous system. Most of the time, most of the people are walking around, we're impulsive, we're stressed, we're anxious, we're worried, we're depressed, we're agitated, we're frustrated. We're all so reactive because we're all so dysregulated. Hi, my name is Mark Groves, and I'm obsessed with understanding human behavior and why we do what we do. In this podcast, I interview the world's most brilliant minds and hearts, where I get to explore, alongside you, every subject you can imagine relating to our human experience and how we relate. It is my deepest intention that we all learn how to create the life and love that we've always dreamt of. Now, before we get rolling, make sure you hit that subscribe button so you don't miss any episodes. And one ask that I have, and an amazing way that you can help support the podcast, is by wherever you listen to it, giving it a five-star review and a written review. With all that said, let's dive in and transform our lives. Hello, Christine Hassler. Hi, Mark. I'm so glad. We've been talking about doing this for well over a year. So I'm glad. Gosh, and then you went and had a baby. I know. How dare I? How dare you get in the way of podcast production? Well, I'm so excited to have you here. It has been, you know, you, you were in my world far before I'm sure I was ever in yours. Your book, The Expectation Hangover, was a great, I mean, it's a fantastic book. Incredible. And I see you're like, one of the OGs in the coaching industry. Yeah. You know, you've seen it change, seen it, you know, seen a lot. I'm very grateful to have you here because your work has always been done with such integrity and uh, such a commitment to helping people. Well, I appreciate that. That's one of my core values is integrity and always being my own best client. Speaking of uh, your having a baby so that we couldn't record a podcast, um, <laughs> maybe we can talk a little bit about the transition into motherhood and and how that's been for you harder than I thought it was going to be, and in a lot of ways, um, you know, I had a baby in my forties and got pregnant naturally and easily. Had a super healthy pregnancy, and and that already was an adjustment because I had never experienced, for lack of a better word, ageism. But I had to stay really out of the whole medical community because everywhere I went. OBs and things like that treated me like I was sick because I was pregnant over 40 and shocked that, you know, it happened naturally. And for me, it it was this kind of um, 
the first part of the initiation into really listening to my own inner wisdom and not subscribing to what other people say in terms of how it has to be. And so I, I had a home birth. I had her at home. It was it was a journey. It was, <laughs> it was a long labor, but I had her at home. And when I was pregnant, I just felt this, this fierceness and this, um, and of course I, I'm a worrier. Like I worry, I have done tons of personal development work on myself and I have just accepted this is just part of who I am because <laughs> I spent so much time trying to not worry and not have anxiety about things. I, I can be super hypervigilant about something and I have done all the things and finally, I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to accept that I'm somebody who worries and I'm somebody who can be hypervigilant and I'm somebody that can have anxiety about certain things. And I just know how to work with it now. And that's one of the things just as an aside, I, I tell my clients and my following is like, there's some things we change and we transform. And then there's some things we just love and accept and work with. And so that falls into the category of I love and accept and I work with it. And but but overall, I had a really just beautiful pregnancy and I had to tap into this like incredible power to birth her the way that I birthed her. And I won't go into that. You can listen to my birth story on my podcast if you're interested. But then she came out. And for the first time in a long time, I was like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know what I'm doing. And that's one of the downsides about having a baby in your 40s after you're pretty well accomplished in other aspects of your life. So humbling. So humbling. Because <laughs> I was like, oh my God, what a, like. I mean, I know the basic things, keep her alive, love her. And because I had a fairly traumatic birth, I was dealing with, you know, the repercussions of that. And and it was just an overwhelming change. And I went from, you know, in, in pregnancy, I was exercising, I was getting massages, I was sleeping well, my self-care was amazing. And then overnight, it just all goes away. It just, it just all goes. And it's all about the child as it should be. But like looking back, I just let my own self-care and my own self kind of go out the window because I was just like, oh my gosh, I have to take care of this child. And when Athena was born, a part of me died. And that part of me that, you know, had freedom, could do whatever she wanted to, was like really committed to her mission and purpose and worked on it, you know, every day a little bit and had had the time freedom to really, you know, do creative projects and to connect with friends and to travel and to be with my husband, it died. And that was confusing because here I was just so overjoyed by having this healthy, beautiful baby girl and at the same time grieving my life. And having those two feelings brought up so much guilt, so much guilt, because there were moments where I was with this new baby and I was like, oh my God, I miss just being able to sleep. Sleep is the thing that I miss the most. I got to tell you, like, <laughs> oh, I would be jealous. I'd see people driving home at night. And I'd be like, oh, I bet they're going to sleep tonight. I'm so jealous. <laughs> and <laughs> and I, I'd, I'd have these thoughts of like, oh, I just want to sleep. And you know, why did I do this? And then immediate guilt, immediate guilt of like, oh my gosh, you can't have those thoughts. And you know, I'm, I'm still in it. Athena's nine months old, but eventually I really want to talk and create a safe, sp safe space for moms, especially new moms, especially moms that also like have a big career and mission to talk about all the thoughts and the feelings that come up. Because I would get texts like, oh, aren't you in the baby bliss? Aren't you just like so blown away? Isn't your heart wide open? And, I could, and I'd be like, oh, I'm not exactly feeling that all the time, 100% of the time. <laughs> You know, I'm feeling like a lot of things and it felt wrong. Like I felt like I was a bad mom for feeling those things. Um, and at the same time, I was really missing, you know, 
my work and, and what I did. I still haven't quite figured out how to, I don't like the word balance because you know I don't think a life is a pie chart that you can balance, but I still haven't quite found my rhythm with work and with mothering because I really love being with my daughter and I really love what I do. And when I'm working, I miss her. And when I'm with her, I miss not all the time, but a lot of the time I miss me, you know, because it's, it's so much about her. And what I have had to remind myself of, because I believe that we pick our parents and I believe that Athena knew the mom that she chose. And I think part of the reason she chose me is Athena is, I mean, even at nine months old, she is fierce. She is opinionated. She is communicative. She is the boss. Like I have to be careful with her because she, <laughs> she's like going to be a CEO I just or something. And I know that part of the reason she picked me is because, you know, I am a leader in my own right and I, I have something that matters to me and I want to model that for her. And I think it's something that so many women go through of like finding that rhythm of being in our purpose and being in our dharma and being a mother. And I don't separate motherhood from my purpose. I actually believe it's it's part of it. But there are certain parts of my work and, and my job that require me to not be with her 24-7. And I've had to also reconcile that's okay because I found an amazing person for her to be with when she's not with me. And the whole raising a child in a village, we've lost essence of that. And there's this pressure on mothers, especially that you like attachment-based parenting, you have to be with your child all the time. And maybe that works for some children, but I don't know that that's works for all children 100% of the time. And that's another thing I've really had to put in my you know pocket as a mother in terms of my tools that I'm gathering is that what works for one child doesn't work for every child. And I'd find myself comparing myself to other mothers and how they're doing things and feel bad that I wasn't doing it that way. But then I had to come back to, wait a second, but you can't apply a one size fits all approach. And I know that because I've worked with thousands and thousands of people, you know, human, adult humans, not baby humans. And there's not a model or structure that I can put everyone through, you know, so why would I put that on a child? But just to wrap it up, it's been the biggest transition of my life, my husband's life, our relationship. It's a beautiful one too. You know, uh, it's it's good to be humbled sometimes. It's good to not know what you're doing. Yeah, you know, you're you're putting into words the post. Like I was talking to Kai yesterday. We recorded a podcast about us having a kid, and I was saying like it's going to be so. It's interesting to confront the reality that I will be a not like a beginner. Yeah, you know, and and that feel. There's part of that that feels amazing because I get to learn from people like you and Stefanos. And then there's the other side where I'm like, Oh God, <laughs> like shit. I don't know anything. And, and so it's beautiful. And at the, it's interesting what you're saying about the sort of balance of having purpose. And I know you're not differentiating them. Like it's, it sounds to me like Athena is contributing to, or, uh, directing your purpose in a way now that's that's different, which is really cool, which I'm sure is is how your previous purpose was born, you know, so it's it, just through challenge and all that kind of stuff. Yep. How do you, because you, you spoke about giving birth and having a baby in your 40s, I'm curious how you balance like the, the fact that uh, you have 
done so much and want to continue to do so much like it. And I, I, it's, it's weird because even when I say that, I'm like, of course, raising a child is a lot. Like it's to do a lot of things. So I don't want anyone to think I'm minimizing that, but the contribution or effect on others or whatever, you know, that sort of feels, feeds our souls. I'm curious your thoughts on that. Well, what I keep reminding myself of is it's a season. You know, she's in a time where, especially because I'm I'm nursing her still and I plan to for a while, she's in a time where she needs a little more of me. And I just put her on a new routine because she's a kid that needs routines and she's finally sleeping, which is like, ah. And people have said to me, oh, doesn't the routine, routine feel so restrictive? I'm like, no, the routine feels freaking <laughs> liberating Sounds because amazing. I know exactly when she's going to sleep. I know how much she's going to sleep. I know when she's going to eat. I know when she's going to poop. And there's so much freedom in that because like trying to guess to me was, oh, it was just awful for, for me and for her. What I have come to has brought me so much peace is what I said earlier, that to know it's a season. And when I look back on all my big growth points in my career, It's been after I've been in the cocoon. It's been after I've been in something where I've went inward, where I haven't been out. Like my big peaks in my career and in my life haven't been because I did some big launch or like I had some big Instagram campaign or I hired some big PR person. My outer experience has always been a reflection of my inner reality. And so I know that motherhood and the contribution I'm making on Athena and and raising a human who I believe is going to do huge things in this world. I think a lot of babies born at this time know what's up and they're coming in like, (laughs) oh man, I got a big agenda. The day she was born, just as an aside, I remember looking at her and she looked up at me and I feel like she gave me this look that said, oh shit, I'm in a baby body. Like, (laughs) oh, again? Oh man. And you know, it was so funny because she was so peaceful. She was, yeah, and it's true. Like she hates being a baby. She hates it. She's always a step ahead. And when she was in, when I was pregnant with her, when she was in the womb, she was super quiet. She never kicked me. She would just kind of stretch. And I was like, oh, she's going to be the most chill baby. And then she came out screaming. She peed on me. And she was just like, shit, I'm here. I got to do this human thing again. Um, but I feel she's a very like old soul and she's, you know, got big things to do in the world. And so I know the impact I'm making on her. And just, I think we put so much pressure on ourselves as parents, but This is where when I can put on my professional hat, it helps so much. All the people I've coached, they've never said, oh, I'm happy and well-adjusted because my parents co-slept with me or because my parents, you know, (laughs) use these words or because my parents, it's when people feel safe and loved, however a family does that, that's what makes the most well-adjusted people. Consistency, safety, and love. And also having parents who are in love. And this is where Steph and I really get to be better because our relationship has been put on the back burner because so much focus has been on her. And one of the things that we want to create and cultivate is for her to see a happy marriage and a happy relationship because we think that makes a big impact. So I know that all these things, everything I'm learning about motherhood, the hours I'm putting in, even, you know, just, just I'll give you an example like of how being a parent is changing me as a coach. So, or, or informing my work as a coach. One thing I noticed about Athena, and I got a, I got a, I got a coach, a parent coach, because I was like, okay, listen, I'm a coach. I preach coaching. People pay me. 
when I don't know what I'm doing, I get a coach. That's what I do. So I got the most epic parent coach. And I was like, okay, listen, you gotta, gotta help me with this because I feel like I'm just effing it up all the time. Not in the sense of giving my power away, but in the like, I want to learn. And this was another thing I struggled with because the other expectation in the mother world is, oh, mother's intuition is best. And you're just going to know. You're just going to know. And you shouldn't listen to anybody else. And I was like, okay, right. I shouldn't listen to anyone else. I should only listen to my intuition, but I don't know what the fuck to do. So maybe I should ask somebody, you know? And it's like, I've, I'm honest enough with myself to know I don't know anything and to reach out to somebody who has 30 years of, re, you know, working with babies to learn some things. And I've learned so much from her. And one of the things is having like a strong parent guided line, like not putting the expectation on the child to like know all their needs and, and lead the communication. So a small example of this, and I'll tie this back into your question in a second, is when Athena and I would go on walks in, in the stroller, she would go for like 10 minutes and then she'd start crying and be like, I want to get out of the stroller. And what would I do? Because I wanted to please her. I'd pick her up and carry her the rest of the way. Now, you know, Austin, it's hot. It's not hot now, but when I was going through this, it was hot. So I'd be sweating. She'd be sweating. My back would be killing me. I'm holding her. I'm pushing the damn out. And it was just a mess. <laughs> and I was talking to Shane, my coach about it. And she's like, Christine, like, you have to ask yourself these questions when she starts crying like that. Is she safe? Who's she with? And what are you asking of her? So is she safe in the stroller? Yes. Who's she with? Her mom, like the safest person in the world. What am I asking of her? Just to sit in the stroller and go for a nice walk. So she's <laughs> right. like, so why are you picking her up? Why can't mm. you be comfortable with her discomfort, teach her how to be with it, and let her start to learn how to enjoy the stroller? Mm. Because for her, it's just like, not her preference. She doesn't really know it. But if you pick her up every time she cries, she's never going to learn mm. that it's okay to have the feelings. To chill. It's okay to ride through something. To yes, chill, chill in a chair and exactly. get pushed with beautiful scenery. And she knows mom's there. So Right. Right. Exactly. And what I got to look at is go, I went, oh my gosh, Shane, like I teach people this. My, <laughs> my specialty is helping people move through their emotions. That's like my specialty. And why am I like not doing that with my child? And so I think like examples like that, I can see how it's going to translate into my work because the amount I've been able to like hold and understand and attune to my child has impacted how I can understand and attune to my clients as well and the people that I speak to. And again, like I don't know what's going to come, but all of my work has been cre I mean, created from my personal experience. Expectation Hangover, which you mentioned, came out of my divorce. So all of my work has been inspired by something I've gone through. That's just the way that I create in the world. I don't feel like my mission is on hold. I mean, there's moments where I feel like I'm disappearing and I'm becoming invisible and like I did it, like all the story stuff. But then I come back to like my truth and what I know to be true, which is like, for me, integrity has always been number one, and I know parenthood and motherhood especially is going to make me have a greater capacity to hold because I see it already. I taught a retreat in October, and the level of depth and, and trauma people brought into the retreat were bigger than I've ever had before, and it's been because like my capacity to hold has, has transformed. And I fall into the trap. I don't fall too deep or for too long because I see it of the bigger, better numbers thing, like the influencer, social media, numbers, popularity contests that the personal growth industry can be. 
but I can usually reel myself back from it and go, I don't really need like mass numbers. I need and want depth of impact. Yeah. So to me, if I impact a hundred people deeply, like if something that they experience through through my work, through work that comes through me, transforms them in a deep way, I'd much rather have that than a million people know who I am. Yeah, I and agree with that. That's what I always come back to. Yeah, it's interesting that you that's the uh, process that you go through because in my experience, what I craved in the last two, three years, two year and a half, two years is depth. So, you know, is like I just did a retreat in Maui in uh, November and there was 26 people and it was just like depth. Like it was so beautiful. It was community. It was village. You know, it was all the things that I think humans have especially been craving in the last little bit. But yeah, I agree with that. I think the cost of social media and the pursuit of those things, whether it's in the personal growth industry or just individually, of reach and recognition, <laughs> I think having had it, it's like not all it's cracked up to be because yeah, you get so much projection. you So much energy is placed upon. Yeah, I'm curious in your experience, the since you've been in the coaching world for so long in the personal growth world, what have you witnessed in changing of it? It's certainly become a lot more mainstream. Yeah, which is amazing. I, you know, when I told people I was a coach back in two thousand four, that's a, I had my first client in two thousand four, so I've been at this nearly twenty years. And people would ask me what sport I coached because <laughs> yeah. the, a life coach wasn't wasn't a term at all. So I love that I've been in it from the get go. There's so much positive that I've seen, more acceptance of it. You know, I I've been in the corporate speaking world for years. And back in 2006, when I started pretty much till 2012, 14, I really had to Trojan horse any hippie stuff is <laughs> often what they called it. I couldn't say meditation. I would have to say mindfulness and things like that. <laughs> so I love that it's, it's more accepted. And I think 2020 was a huge catalyst for that. I think more people started looking deeper for things. And that's that's the whole point of Expectation Hangover. Uh, the whole point of that book is it is in those disappointing times when life throws us a curveball, life doesn't turn out like we planned, that we have this incredible opportunity to to leverage and really look in and go, okay, what am I learning from this? So I love that I've seen the, the personal development industry expand into corporate world, expand into mainstream media, like really become more accepted. Now it's not a thing where you have to whisper that you have a therapist or a coach yeah, or something so that, true. That, that people accept. And I think that's so important because mental health is just a silent epidemic in so many ways. And, and as someone who is on antidepressants from age 11 till 30, you know, back when I was 11 and seeing a psychiatrist, I'd have to white out the word psychiatrist on my school excuse because I didn't want anyone to know that's what was happening. And now, you know, there there isn't so much taboo. There still is some, and you know, we're still finding our way out of it. But I, I love that that it it isn't as shameful and shame based anymore. So that's beautiful. I also love that so many people are getting into the coaching industry. You know, so many people are finding purpose in becoming a coach and developing that work and and making impact on people. You know, one of the things I do is I run a coaching institute with three of my peers and 
we're training epic coaches. And I love that. I love training coaches. And then there's the things that I haven't loved that I've seen, you know, like the, we'll use the weight loss or diet industry. Sometimes the personal development industry can sell a lot of quick fixes, mm-hmm. you know, I put this expectation on people that if you just do this one course or buy this one book or do this one program, then XYZ problem is going to be fixed. And if, if it isn't, then you're a failure in some way. And I think what's important for all of us to remember is that the human experience is such a journey and it's such an evolution and we're never done. My intention is that my times between suffering moments and really hard moments get longer and the time I spend suffering when something does go wrong gets shorter, you know, because I have more tools and I've done more work and I'm not getting re-triggered by the same thing over and over and over and over again. You know, that's when you know you really are in something if it's the same thing over and over and over again. But you know you're evolving if it's different stuff. <laughs> different stuff is coming up, you know, different triggers. I think that quick fix expectation is is misleading people. And I also, you know, I don't love that so many personal development people have become celebrities. And let me, let me, I just want to be really clear about what I mean by this. I think it's great when people who have important information to share become well-known because they can help more people. You know, I think about somebody like Brene Brown or Stara Perel, who are my two career crushes. Yeah. And I, I love that. Similar crushes. They, yeah. <laughs> they're so good. They have become more well-known and I, their work is so researched and deep and, and everything. But they become well-known because of their body of work, not because they're great marketers, not because they know how to do a photo shoot. That's the part that concerns me, is that sometimes people who are great marketers, who know how to like make things look good, who know how to get the clicks and all that kind of thing, and kind of look popular and be aspirational, are really getting a lot of people's trust, but kind of holding themselves on a bit of a pedestal. And sometimes that pedestal doesn't really have the depth of work and transformation to support it. So that's just one thing that I'm really clear about when I'm following anyone or looking up to anyone is like, what's the foundation of they stand on? Okay, great. They've got a big following. They've got beautiful photos. They know how to sell. Their website's all polished. They've got a great funnel. But what's the depth of work that they're really standing on? And I would say to everyone, just to be discerning about you know who you follow because we're always letting information in, you know, just like you want an air filter in your house to clear out the pollutions, we, we, pollutants, we've got to do that with the information that we consume too. So, you know, are you following people because they're aspirational and you look up to them and you think they're really amazing? Or are you following and listening to people because their work and their information is making you think and making you feel and, and not leaving you hyped up but leaving you like opened up and reflective and pondering and and wanting to explore. You know, I'm always cautious of those workshop highs or those, you know, video highs of like getting people hyped up and, you know, you can do anything. And then it's like you leave and you're back to your life because <laughs> it's right. it was just hype, right? Yeah. Nothing really, really changed. And so that's just the piece that I'm just watching with some discernment is let's not make personal transformation Hollywood. I worked in Hollywood. That was my first career. And I'm so glad I did because I met and interacted with super famous people. I had a career of my own, but I also happened to date the head of a movie studio. And so through my own career, but especially through his, there was nothing I didn't see. And I learned at a very young age, 23, 
that being rich and famous does not make you happy mm-hmm. at all. I'm really glad I got that out of my system because I was a super insecure kid who was never in the popular crowd, who wanted to be famous to prove to the world, or really just a few girls that tease me at school, that I really was somebody. You know, I really wanted to be somebody. And I'm really glad that between that Hollywood experience and my first coach, Mona Miller, who was my coach in my 20s and 30s, that that got sort of, for lack of a better word, beaten out of me. Like I, I lost that whole um, drive to be popular and famous because I saw how empty it was. And I saw the place and it was coming from inside of me was a deep place of insecurity. That's why I've always made my own life, my own mental health, my own well-being more important than you know any number, be it my income or my my following. Mm, that's beautiful. It's interesting that that tends to be the drive for people in terms of social media or career or you know I guess I I read recently a poll that said of Gen. I don't know if it's Z now, whatever the lower one the is. The new one is iGen. iGen. All right. Well, iGens, and uh, those gens in there, <laughs> they 25% of them want to be influencers. And I was like, what does that even mean? You know, like, what do you want to influence? You know, and I get that there's a desire. You know, like, I've never worked at an office. My previous career was in um, pharma. And you were you ran a territory, you work from your home, you know. And so I recognize the value of remote living and and not having to go into an office. So I can I, I see why people want that. So it's not like a lifestyle based. I get that. Do we just want to influence like what bathing suits someone buys? Or and again, that's not a judgment. I don't even want to sound like I'm judging because that's I guess what a model does, you know, is influences purchases. But I guess I get concerned that we want to influence only the superficial and and only the material. And there's probably a part of me that wants to not be known as an influencer either, even though people will be like, you're an influencer. And I'm like, um, well, I guess. I mean, I, like, I hope to influence people's behavior or influence their choices. Well, you know, I think there's a difference between judging something and being legitimately concerned about something, which is what I'm hearing. I am concerned about it. I'm concerned about technology and what it's doing to young people, especially young girls. But, you know, I think, and I say that only because of knowing that like social media, just talking to so many experts on it, it's like the impact it's had on all of humanity, but especially girls is really significant. Yeah, it is. And I'm so, so, so glad I did not grow up with social media. Oh I, I'm God. so Me glad too. I grew up in a time where there was call waiting and cords on a phone. Call waiting, yeah. And <laughs> DVDs and VCRs and all those things because I already struggled so much. And if there had been social media, it would have been even worse. So I'm. I couldn't even imagine. Like, oh. I'm the same as you. I Our first computer was like when I was in my teens, you know? And yeah. That was just for homework. Like you weren't yeah. surfing any web. You were on dial up. You know, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I am. Um, I'm concerned about it as a parent, and I'm concerned about it as someone who just loves humanity. And you know, I look to the iGen or the the younger millennials. The fact that so many of them want to be influencers tells me a couple things. One, our priorities like as a society have gotten askew. The fact that we, you know, pay influencers and, you know, even athletes, these extraordinarily high salaries and teachers get nothing. That's just a mind fuck. 
right? Like what's going to have the greatest impact on a child? Teacher, 100%. Exactly. Second to a parent, yes. And if teachers were celebrated that way, then more would say they want to be a teacher. But what it shows me is that, you know, when somebody wants to be an influencer and somebody wants to have like that kind of power, there there's something off with their sense of self. And, you know, this kind of, this goes back to parenting. And again, I am someone who is, you know, 20 years deep in personal transformation and I'm still getting support in my parenting because it is hard. It is really hard. And I'm so glad I'm, this is why I'm so glad I'm a parent later in life because I know a lot more. Like I know so much more about how to make Athena feel safe, how to be consistent, how to create an environment for her. And, you know, I, I know for me, things are going to get easier when she can talk and interact because yeah. that's more my jam is like talking humans, not, <laughs> yeah, not, not just baby humans. screeching, pooping um, humans. Yeah, exactly. Um, I become excellent at changing diapers though. Very, very good. <laughs> are you and fast. Good? Are you good? I'm, I yeah. still have yet to change one in my life. So it's about ah, to happen. You'll be fine. Steph could barely hold the baby or change a diaper. And you just, when it's yours, <laughs> you, just, it, you just get it. Yeah. You just get it. But I, I, I look to, you know, what is making these people say they want to be influencers and there's something missing. There's something missing in their sense of self, in their sense of feeling like they matter, their sense of safety in the world. Because, you know, at that young age, we only want to have power over others or influence over others if in some way in our life we don't feel empowered. Mm. You know, so Mm. how do we start to raise really empowered, confident kids? So that they're more interested in making impact or they're more interested in doing something that they love. Because I think it's great to say, I want to make impact in the world. I also think it's amazing to say, I love music. It just lights me up and I want to do something in music. I think too, because social media and TV and media has just become such a huge part of our world, we've missed out on music and gardening and dance and gym, like all these other Play, things. like all the out. Yeah. Play, yeah, that kids can be interested in and they're just spending so much time on their phone. You know, it's easy for me to say I have a nine-month-old so I don't have to deal with like screen time or anything like that. We can't be lazy parents and just like let our kids have the screen or the social media or whatever too early so that they, you know, don't really find their way to their natural gifts because what what I'm seeing is that kids too soon are getting into video games and social media and the phones and the TV and they're missing the sweet spot to start to explore their natural gift because the more you're on one of these the more you're going to be disconnected from like the natural expression of your gifts what and I think we all are born with them whatever they are And so, you know, again, I don't have like an answer right now other than, you know, it's so important for me. One of the biggest pieces of my mission, especially since Athena has been born, is to help people be better parents, both to themselves, their own inner child, and to their children. Because I I don't think things will change until parenting changes, until community changes. Like I love that I live in Austin and we have a lot of friends who have kids and we're around a lot of other parents and we have a lot of people in our life. My family's here too. Because I don't want to be the only influencer on Athena. <laughs> you know, I want her to, to, to be around other adults and, and see that and, and have the expression, you know, be able to look for her interests. But I just think this whole like, you know, it's the popularity thing that all of us can think back to in middle school and high school and just how plaguing that was to want, you know, 
are you the cool kid? Are you not the cool kid? Like, do you fit in? Do you not? And, you know, my desire to prove something in Hollywood was my way of saying I want to be an influencer. Just There just wasn't that word at the time. So I think that's another reason it hits home for me is because I can so relate to it. You know, I can so relate to it. But if I had really back then, you know, really known how to find my way and if I'd been taught to, you know, find my own unique way versus trying to fit in, because the way I tried to survive middle school and high school was to fit in. I thought if I can blend and I can be like other people, then maybe I'll be liked and accepted. Whereas like looking back, if I had been really empowered to just be me and learn how to not care so much what other people think, I don't know that I would have had such a strong desire to have to prove myself to the world. It makes total sense. We need to talk about my morning routine. I'm nailing it. I got meditation, breath work, some cool plunging, workouts. And, you know, most of you have probably tried meditation. I'm guessing for some of you, it is part of your morning ritual. But have you tried breath work? That's my question. I took a class on an app that I'm just loving and I'm hooked on it. The app is unbelievable and it's called Open. I had the founder, Minaj Diaz, on the podcast a few times because he's an incredible teacher and he really lives everything that he shares. And the app is incredible. The design is insane. Some of the benefits that I've really experienced from implementing this in my morning routine is I sleep better, I'm less stressed, and I have more energy and focus throughout the day. And the best part about Open is that the classes are under 10 minutes. So it's easy to stick with. It's not like an overwhelming thing. It's actually quite simple. And so usually what I'll do is a meditation, breath work, and then they also have movement classes. So it's easy to just have consistent morning routines because you can go to one place and it's just that much easier. It's definitely different from other mindfulness apps out there and you're definitely going to know what I mean when you try it. You get 30 days for free when you sign up with my code Create the Love. So you just visit withopen.com slash create the love. So again, you get 30 days free, so you got no risk on open, and you just go to withopen, W-I-T-H-O-P-E-N.com slash create the love. Go check it out. I was thinking about when I was 11, 12, 13, you know, those delicate ages of of um, individuation. and Oh, they're awful. Yeah, and like I, when I taught soccer camps, I used the, the ages used to be split by like five to six, seven to nine and then 10 to 13. Like it was somewhere around there. And what was so fascinating, I was like 19, 18 when I taught them. And what you'd see is no identity in five to six, like play, joy. And then seven, eight, nine, you started to see the, I'm a boy, you're a girl, I'm, I'm white, you're Chinese, or, you know, like you start to see all the identities start to be adopted and, and formed. And then, you know, 11, 12, 13, you start to see this this sort of social hierarchy really start to take place. Like the good looking kids, the the athletes, the the nerds, you know, like all these words that we have to and and when I was in grade five, grade six, grade seven, when puberty sort of happens and, and all that's going on, I noticed that I just stayed <laughs> the social structure got created and I stayed lower on the social structure. And if I had if social media existed, then I probably would have lost myself in that world first off, which is exactly what it's designed to do, unfortunately. And secondly, I would have probably sought to be an influencer because I would have wanted, like you said, 
to prove. I, that was really uh, when you're trying to seek power, it's because you you have an absence of it. I wonder though, you know, looking back at coaches I had and teachers I had, I had some great coaches and great teachers, and I also had a few that were pretty like left lasting memories in my self worth. You know, previously. Do you think that, because when I think about teachers and how important that job is, I also know that it's pretty hard to lead and, and hold a relationship with a student. And, and they're asked to hold hundreds and hundreds in a year, right? Like that's, this is no small task. Should it be that we have to do sort of the personal excavation in the learning as we become teachers? And and, and I'm thinking sports coaching in this context, but of course, as coaches and therapists, and anyone who's a healer in, in any of those capacities, in my personal experience, you have to be willing to go to the depths. And I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts about education. I've seen teacher, like teachers I had who hated parts of me, or at least that was my experience of it. And so they weren't harnessed or developed or disciplined in a way that maybe was healthy, that if they had done some personal work, there could have been you know, a difference. Like I'm triggering them in a way that's bringing up something for them. So I'm curious, yeah, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, wouldn't it be nice if every teacher could go through incredible every parent, personal development every, and every right. parent, yeah. and, you know, every every How police officer, that? every uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> every single human? Because I think the world would be a different place if more people actually did their work. Because you know why things are so hard is because people are constantly getting triggered and people are constantly time traveling. You know what I mean by that is a person's walking around thinking they're thirty-seven years old and they're in you know two thousand twenty-two. But somebody says something or they hear a sound or somebody shows up that looks like somebody and they're eight again or they're 14 again or whatever. And th- they're going to be more reactionary than than really responsive. And that's where we really get into trouble. And yeah, to the teacher world, I mean, I can think of you know so many teachers. Teachers were my, my friends because I didn't really have friends. So, so many teachers had a huge impact on me. But I was probably one of the easy kids in the class. You know, I wasn't the more challenging kids. And I think that you do need training on how to really hold that. And again, you know, if we talk about the educational system, it's not a system, especially in our country, especially here in, I'm in America, where it works really well. It's not a great system. You know, we can speak the same about our healthcare system. We can look at all our systems and go, okay, wait, like this is not working really well. Do I have the answer for it? Not necessarily. But what I'm seeing happen, especially in, in Austin where I am, is more schools are starting to be formed. People are like, okay, we may not be able to fix that over there, but can we create something new where you know teachers have different training, where classrooms are made for students who are labeled as ADHD or dyslexic or all these kind of labels that I think have been created and put on kids to, you know, that, that don't fit into the system. And that's a whole nother topic. I think sometimes labels can be helpful because they can give us useful information to get the guidance and the support that we need, but they can also be confining and detrimental because often it makes us form stories about ourselves that aren't helpful. Agreed. Again, I, I definitely don't have the answer, but I know for, for me, even in going in and holding, like when I do a retreat, my last retreat was a hundred people and I needed you know, years of training on how to hold that group. Because as a teacher, we're choosing that as an example, or a parent in a family or whatever, you're not just responsible for that for one child. You've got to learn how to hold the container of the class and be able to manage 
that one over there who's quiet and being teased, that one over there whose parents are going to divorce and is sad, this one over here who's acting out, this one over here is a super creative kid who has trouble sitting still. Like it's a lot. Yeah, <laughs> and I think is. most teachers and parents are in survival mode. They're in survival mode. And the biggest thing that we do not know how to do as humans is regulate our nervous system. We walk around most of the time. Most of the people are walking around 90 to 99.9% of the time dysregulated. And what I mean by that is their nervous system, they're not in rest and digest. They're more in that fight or flight kind of, you know, the amygdala part of our brain is triggered. And that's not the part of our brain where we think the most clearly, where we're in present time, where we can drop into our heart and feel and experience love, where we can feel our intuition. When we're dysregulated, we're reactive, we're impulsive, we're stressed, we're we're time traveling, we're we're trying to like, you know, quickly find a solution rather than you know, thinking about something. We're anxious, we're worried, we're depressed, we're agitated, we're frustrated, all these kinds of things. We have kind of low-level base anxiety. And if more adults were taught how to regulate their nervous system, like if parents knew you know, when your kid irritates you or they're acting out, if you could just take three really deep breaths and make a sound like <sighs> before you go and deal with them, just that little bit is going to help regulate you a little bit more. And so they're going to feel it because our nervous systems interact. Your nervous system and my nervous system are interacting right now because we're having an exchange. And if one of us was, if I was dysregulated, like you'd have to really regulate your nervous system to like come back into regulation. This is, happens in couples, it happens in families, it happens at school, it happens all over the place. So one of the things that that I really love to teach, and we train our coaches in Elementum, our coaching institute, the biggest thing we train them is regulation, like how to regulate, how to help people regulate their nervous system, how to deal with trauma, somatics, how to feel in the body. Because we're, we're all so reactive because we're all so dysregulated. And for people listening, I want you to really think about, you know, what can you do to start to regulate your nervous system? What can you do to get out of fight, flee, freeze, fawn? If we could teach the world how to regulate our nervous systems and, and be aware that we're dysregulated a lot of the time, um, our communication would improve. Um, our ability to adapt would improve. Our connection to our intuition would improve. Uh, everything would shift, but we're all mostly coming from a dysregulated place. And that can just come from stress, you know, like using the teacher example, because I think it's a good one. You walk in, your kids are acting up. You've got 20 of them. You haven't slept because you've got your own kids You're being paid nothing. Like it's very hard. <laughs> right. Yeah. This is no slight on teachers. This is like, they're important. Before nervous system stuff really became sort of mainstream and I, you know, Peter Levine really brought that stuff to light and but it didn't really become mainstream till probably like what a year ago maybe two years ago that you really started to see more conversations about that it seems like you know when i started to do nervous system work and work with a somatic therapist i remember someone saying like nervous system work bypasses the mind so all that talk therapy stuff and all the stuff like that's helpful but you can have to often move through it very quickly with somatics. And uh, I worked with this psychotherapist who also did body work and nervous system work. I did a weekend with him in a men's group. And I remember when I got there, I was like, I don't really know what I'm going to talk about. <laughs> you know, like, I don't, I don't have anything coming up. <laughs> well, we found it. And yeah. it was some of the, 
some of the most profound, most powerful work because I unstuck my nervous system. Like I accessed rage. I, I mean, it was so powerful and I, I now see, you know, having experienced it too and witnessed it and worked with people with it. It's, it's crazy. Like talk therapy without somatics, unless it influences your somatic, which it can. I, I don't know they can, that they can be done separately. I feel like they must be done together. And when I think about all those coaches and therapists and people who've influenced me in my life, it was all because they were regulated. They were deeply rooted in themselves. And there was like just a a somatic trust, you know, there's like, they're like sitting beside a tree. That's probably why I love trees so much. Yeah. I love trees too. Yeah. Cause they're rooted and grounded and yeah, you can, you can trust them. And that's, you're, you're speaking my, my language here because I, I just, you know, get as someone who isn't therapy since I was 11 and this isn't a dig on therapy at all. It's more uh, just to share a personal experience. It wasn't until I met Mona, who I mentioned before, who got me into the somatics, who helped me like hit a pillow and scream, not in a cathartic way, but with words to find my rage, to find my anger and to find my sadness, to find my shame and be willing to to feel it and express it and feel where it was in my body and feel where I was holding things because you know, neck up is how I lived. And that's how so many people live, just completely disconnected from the body. And, you know, we can get into a whole other podcast about the epidemic of physical disease and pain and symptoms that come from unexpressed emotion and trauma that we hold in the body. I mean, I just interviewed uh, Gabor Mate and his new book. And and I'm actually, I'm listening to, uh, I've read uh, You Are the Placebo, but I'm listening to Becoming Supernatural right now from Joe Dispenza. I loved Dr. Joe. Man, he's incredible. And I, I mean, and both of them are talking about psychoneuroimmunology and, and this correlation of emotion to disease. And it's like, I remember saying once a couple of years ago on my Instagram, I know so many people whose autoimmune was triggered from trauma often when they were young. I got so much pushback and I'm like, how can it, how are we missing this? Like when I worked as a rep, I worked in gastroenterology for a little bit. And when I was working with gastros, this is in like 2003, 2004, there's no conversation about the microbiome, you know, like, it's just great. Again, this is evolution. This is science. This is the growth of knowledge. So it's not a slight on it. It's that I don't, when you said earlier, how do we raise empowered children? I don't know that these systems want empowered people. And I, mm-hmm. listen, I've, I've got a little more cynicism in me in the last couple of years. So I, I can own that. Yeah. Like it's, I'm really activating a deeper sense of hope and, and all that now, but I have felt sort of stuck in a little bit of, collective trauma, I think that we've all been in, but I'm like, yeah, the only way to do it is by all of us getting our own and then sharing it and teaching and somatics, you know, like getting nervous system regulation. I mean, to me, that's empowered, integrated humaning. That's not even a word. I just made it up. Yeah. I love it. Well, and again, is it cynicism or is it observation of going, this is not working? This is not working. I think we all saw, I mean, at least I saw with 2020, like one, how much people's trauma got activated Yeah, because the responses I, you know, saw to certain things, it's like what, wherever someone felt unsafe in their life or whatever they were trying to avoid, whatever was brushed deep under that rug got activated because when there's uncertainty, it's a great trauma trigger because when we think we have control, 
and when we're just in our predictable life, we can keep our trauma at bay. And we can keep it buried away. You know, it might act up in some back pain or constant relationship issue or whatever. But, you know, we're doing our thing. We're going to work. We've got our Europe vacation every year. We've got, you know, our Tuesday night wine night with our girl. Whatever. We've got like our things. But what 2020 did was it took everybody's predictability away and threw everybody into uncertainty, especially that initial time. And you really get to see how much work you've done and how much trauma you've healed when uncertainty is thrown in your life. When you get an expectation hangover, as I call it, and it's a curveball. And how you respond and adapt to that is a direct reflection of how embodied you are. The great thing about the past two years for me, and we've, we alluded to this earlier, is that two things. One, it's brought a lot of people into the work, which is amazing. Yeah, it has. Because That's they true. had no choice. Two, it's revealed a lot of things that needed to be seen. You know, I think we're living in a time, we talked about these new children being born. I mean, our our kids are going to be a year apart. They're same generation. You know, I just see, and I see it with my friends, that the babies that are coming in now, they are lit up. They are aware, they are alert, and they've got things to do. And if we look at, you know, the human experience, as a direct mirror to the collective experience, like the individual experience of the collective, all of us can probably relate to something had to be broken down. Like I had to look at something that wasn't working, completely deconstruct it, completely let it go to find something new. And I think that's what we're going to have to do with so many of these systems that just are not working. So I don't know, like I appreciate you owning the cynicism piece and I'm sure I've stepped into that as well. But I also think we need to be perceptive and discerning about things. And I don't know, you know, that that's necessarily cynicism. Yeah, I appreciate that mirror. You know, it's as I was listening to uh, Becoming Supernatural, I was recognizing, you know, he, it, it, Joe Dispenza, Dr. Joe was talking about how, like, nobody can live in a suspended state of stress and, and trauma and uncertainty. I was like, oh man, like we've all been in a suspended state of stress, mm-hmm. trauma and uncertainty for the last two years. And as I was mountain biking this morning when I was listening to it, and uh, you know, I was, I was joking with my friend that I was wearing a weighted vest, but it was attached to me and it was part of me <laughs> due to my, uh, we call it a COVID-19, uh, much like the <laughs> freshman 15. <Yeah. laughs> but I was thinking about how much, just the impact, it's had this impact on me and I consider myself fairly resourced, fairly tooled up, but with, I had a lot to learn in the last two, three years and I'm grateful for it. But I'm like, man, the impact this has had on so many people who don't even recognize that belonging has been weaponized against them, that fear has been funneled, you know, like down their throat and, and then they wonder why they're sick. Because I then, you know, I was thinking about it, I'm like, man, how many epigenetic triggers have I pulled in the last two years that I now need to be very conscientious to undo, you know, because I know that trauma triggers autoimmune. I know that trauma triggers all these different things. It impacts, I know that pain and uncertainty and all these things impact digestion, which impacts inflammation, which I know all these things and yet I'm living in it. And, you know, much like your parenting coach, you know, I'm like, thanks for telling me. Cause you know, as I was listening to the book, I'm like, well, there's a level of responsibility. Like I can sit and wallow in the fact that we've all been traumatized and people experience immense traumas all the time, or I can do something about it. I can fucking 
get up every morning, do that workout, make sure my body's in a heightened state, meditate, work on my mind, my heart. So I'm curious, what are the tools that you recommend for us to become integrated and empowered? And, you know, I know it's not an overnight thing. So, you know, what is it? Yeah. What are your, what are your ways? Oh, yeah, it's definitely not an overnight thing, but it's a daily thing. Like you mentioned, it's, it's a daily thing. And, and like I was saying earlier about, you know, there's no one size fits all for a baby. There's not a one size fits all for, for humans. So I think what I have found in my own life and working with so many people is finding what works for you. Like I love Dr. Joe, but am I going to sit and do an hour and 20 minute meditation every day? Nope. No, I tried. <laughs> I didn't do it. Every once in a while, we're like, yes, since yeah. I had a baby. Um, (laughs) so I have found, you know, my things that really help me regulate that that's huge. So I, what I'll say is I think the first step is to know where you are in your own journey. So are you more in a maintenance place? Are you in like a little remodeling place? Like you, you, you just need to clean some stuff up. Like you may be a little bit Mark, or are you in a real like dig deep, transformation place, like something's up that you need to handle and deal with. And so I think it's different tools for all those stages. If you've, you know, got a trauma that you haven't dealt with, or you've gotten something big that's happened in your life and you're just in survival mode and you know, you're dysregulated and you know, you need some help, then you're in the roll your sleeves up and find support. Like that's the phase where I don't think we can do it alone. And I don't think we can do it just with books and podcasts. We actually need another human being, be it a coach, therapist, some kind of practitioner, to to work with us and to be our guide and to to hold for us to hold that container because it can feel really scary to look at our trauma and let's just like we've used that word a lot I just want to define it you know trauma doesn't mean you had to be abused or you know you had this huge awful thing you could have moved a lot in your life and that was traumatic somebody could have said one mean thing to you in sixth grade and that was traumatic you know trauma is too much too fast too soon and it can be different for different people you know for me. The way I was teased was traumatic for somebody else with a different personality and a different nervous system and different background and parents and all that stuff. And by the way, I had great parents. They might have not, they might have been like, that doesn't bother me at all. Like I'll just dish it back. And it was not a big deal for them. So we never can compare our trauma to someone else's. That's the worst thing to do because often we minimize our experience because we're like, oh, I didn't have it so bad. And then you're minimizing it and minimizing it and minimize it. And then you wake up at 40 and you're sick. So don't minimize your own experience. So that's the first thing. Know what phase you're in. And if you're in that phase of like, you've got some shit to handle, pardon my French, then then that's, it's like getting a guide. And then if you're in the like tweaking, remodeling phase, it's like going back to what works, you know, going back to what works. And I think putting in a 40-day practice, like 40 days of what's what's your practice that's going get, to get you back to where you want to go, whether it's diet stuff, whether it's meditation, like what works for you in terms of where, you know, what you need to tweak. And one thing that that I call it my start, stop, modify plan, because I did a lot of research on how long it takes for something to change from a discipline to a habit, because I don't have to think about brushing my teeth every day. Like I don't have to put sticky notes up. Like I, I do it. It's It's a habit. I don't even remember doing it. It's just something that occurs, but it's somewhere around that 40 day mark. So if you pick one thing that you want to start doing, one thing you want to stop doing, and one thing you want to modify over 40 days and put that in practice, that's a great way for something to become um, a habit rather than so you have to discipline too. 40 days. Super simple. And that's, that's great, especially in that kind of remodeling phase, because if you're like, oh my gosh, I did this and this and this is like New Year's resolutions. You make 40 million of them and you, none of them stick. So be specific, be brief, keep it simple. And then if you're in that more maintenance phase of, you know, 
if you just want to stay committed to your practices, like again, what are the things that work for you? I love Dr. Joe. I've been to his advanced retreat twice. I will probably go again. But for me, I'm not going to sit and do it for an hour and a half a day. I just It's not where I am in my life. So I have an 11-minute meditation that I love. I um, also know my nervous system and my vagus nerve is something that's a constant I need to constantly come back to that, especially with new motherhood and sleep deprivation. So I have certain tools that I use, like vibration tools and and certain breath work and sounds that I use to really regulate my vagus nerve and my nervous system. Because to me, that's going to do my nervous system way more good than sitting and trying to meditate for 10 minutes. So knowing what works for our body. For someone else, it could be a walk, you know, 20 minutes a day. So it's finding those things that really work for you versus following someone else's prescription or like what worked for somebody else. Yeah. Building in the act of even finding what works for you is building in discernment and choice and responsibility. I use breath work sometimes depending what I need and, you know, and different types of breath work depending what you need. So it's cool to have choices, you know, many uh, uh, arrows in the quiver. Thank you so much for coming on. I feel like we definitely need two to three hours, probably. Joe, we need to Joe Rogan style this. So next I time know, I'm we in Austin. Relationships or masculine feminine dynamics or like any of that stuff. We got way more to talk about. We're going to do it. I, I think we need to just plan an in-person Joe Rogan style. We're just going to do it. Well, maybe when I'm in Austin or if you, if you guys come out to Vegas uh, anytime soon, but. Wait, uh, you're in Vegas now? I am right now. Yeah. Just. Oh. Just until our child is born and then uh, we'll be making a move once once things are settled, you know? Yeah. Where can people find more of you and, and your books and all the things and your coaching institute? Oh, thank you for that. Um, well, you mentioned Expectation Hangover. That's a book. You can get it on Amazon. So good, um, or by any, the way. any other everybody. places. So good. Thank you. It's a, it's a deep book. It's, it's, it's not fire. like a beach read. <laughs> no, and it's fire. It's like, hey, clean your shit up. I love you. Yeah. That's it. It says yeah. both of those things. Yeah. I'm kind of like, go for it. Like, don't do the surface stuff. Just like dig deep and then, you know, things get easier. Um, I love my podcast, which you're going to be on. Um, it's called Over It and On With It. There's two episodes a week. One episode, you hear a live, unscripted, unedited coaching session between me and someone I don't know. And then I explain what I did. So you learn so much about psychology, inner child, relationships. So There's powerful. nothing I haven't. You're one of the first people who ever did that. It's so powerful. Everybody thought I was crazy, but it's been my favorite thing ever. Um, and then the other episode, I bring someone on like you and we, we riff a bit. And then Christine Hassler is all the website and Instagram handle. Oh, and the Coaching Institute. We'll be starting our third class, September of 2023. So crazy to say 2023. I feel like Y2K was yesterday. Um, <laughs> it's, it's called Elementum Coaching Institute. And we train like embodied, like, weapons of, of coaches there. It's a very rigorous program that's about seven months long. Beautiful. Well, uh, Stefanos has been on the podcast, I think, twice now. So I'm happy to- Really? Have, yeah, I think twice. And I'm happy to have you on. And you're coming back. We got to do like a sit down. Also, I was thinking it would be pretty cool to do one with both you and Steph and do about- Because uh, Kai and I are will be a year behind you. So it'd be really fascinating to see how as a couple- you know, Kai and I were talking about this on our solo episode, on our episode that we recorded, just about our awareness that we become, we go from couple to family, and then how will the relationship be in that? And I was talking to her just about 
some of my fears, you know, about that and her fears too. So um, it'd be interesting to talk to you guys about that. And what you we're think. down for all that. I would talk to you for hours and hours and hours. So agree. You you name it, and we're there. Okay, perfect. Well, I appreciate you. Thank you for your time, and we'll make sure we put all those links in the show notes. Thank you so much. Thanks, Mark. Bye.